0: It is our hope that you will prayerfully listen to this sermon audio. We're in 1 Samuel chapter 16 this morning, but look at the first half of that chapter. And I've titled this morning's message, uh, Look at the Heart. Look at the Heart. I'm sure I'm using this opening illustration only because it's I'm, I'm living it right now. My mind is filled right now with trying to find a replacement for... Uh, Brian Arnett the vacancy that he left and so have been receiving resumes and looking through that. I'll say more about that in our members meeting when we get there. But have you ever wondered, you know, how do, how do you go about finding um, someone for an open position in your workplace? Some of you perhaps have been in hiring situations where you have to hire people. And depending on what kind of work we do, we've probably all been in a situation where where we either fill out a job application or we complete a resume or some similar uh, form of documentation that shows the potential employer our skills and our experience. Uh, And most of us, of course, we're not going to put things on our job application or or on our resume that will reflect poorly on us. You know, for myself, for example, I've seen dozens, if not hundreds of resumes in my life, and I have yet to come across one resume that would say, finished in the bottom 10% of my academic class. Um, or, you know, I've got charges pending against me, but I'm quite sure they'll be cleared up very soon. You know, we don't put those things on our resume, right? Or at least I hope you don't. Uh, we want our resumes, we want our job application to reflect the most positive aspects of ourselves. We We want to wow people with the best of who we are. And so as a result, a resume or a job application will rarely give us a glimpse into the heart of who someone really is. So further digging is required oftentimes. We, we have to get to know that person a bit. Or even better, we, we talk to somebody who's known that person for a while and we can now begin to get a feel for who that person is. But even when we take those extra steps, We still never really get to the heart of somebody. Even those who are... Think about the people that are closest to you. Maybe your spouse or your parents or whoever. Even for them, we don't know their hearts perfectly, do we? That's something only God can do. And that's what we're going to see in our text today. So if you're in 1 Samuel 16, say Amen. Just 13 verses this morning. um, Verses 1-13. through Follow along with me. The Lord said to Samuel... How long will you grieve over Saul, since I have rejected him from being king over Israel? Fill your horn with oil and go. I will send you to Jesse, the Bethlehemite, for I have provided myself a king among his sons. And Samuel said, How can I go? If Saul hears it, he will kill me. And the Lord said, Take a heifer with you and say, I have come to sacrifice to the Lord. And invite Jesse to the sacrifice, and I will show you what you shall do. And you shall anoint from me him whom I declare to you. Samuel did what the Lord commanded and came to Bethlehem. The elders of the city came to meet him, trembling, and said, Do you come peaceably? And he said, Peaceably. I have come to sacrifice to the Lord. Consecrate yourselves and come with me to the sacrifice. And he consecrated Jesse and his sons and invited them to the sacrifice. When they came, he looked on Eliab and thought, pass by and he said neither has the Lord chosen this one and Jesse made seven of his sons pass before Samuel and Samuel said to Jesse the Lord has not chosen these Then Samuel said to Jesse are all your sons here and he that is Jesse said there remains yet the youngest but behold he is keeping the sheep and Samuel said to Jesse send and get him for we will not sit down till he comes here and he sent and brought him in Now he was ruddy and had beautiful eyes and was handsome. And the Lord said, Arise, anoint him, for this is he. Then Samuel took the horn of oil and anointed him in the midst of his brothers. And the Spirit of the Lord rushed upon David from that day forward. And Samuel rose up and went to Ramah. Let's pray together. Father, thank You so much for Your grace and kindness to us. Lord, use our time. Uh, brief as it may be, use our time, Father, to mold us and shape us ever more into Your image. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So our central idea is uh, just five five words long. God looks at our heart. And what I want to do with that phrase, God looks at our heart, is I want to take that phrase and be, even though God looks at our heart, make four different connections to that with God looking at our heart. And so uh, point number one is God looks at our heart. But our actions are still important. God looks at our heart, but our actions are still important. We're going to see this in verses 1 through 5. You see, because Samuel, or excuse me, because God can see our heart, He knows that Samuel is still grieving over Saul. At the end of chapter 15, Samuel was grieving over Saul then, and now at the beginning of chapter 16, Samuel is still grieving over Saul. And if you weren't here last week to know why Samuel is grieving over Saul, it's actually quite simple. In chapter 15, Saul fails to obey the Word of the Lord for the second time. And because of his failure, because of his disobedience, the kingdom is torn from his hands. And now, as I said last week, Saul is going to continue to reign as king for a number of years. In fact, you'll see through the rest of our study in 1 Samuel, he's going to be king throughout the remainder of 1 Samuel. But he's now reigning as the rejected king. For the remainder of his reign, he knows that there's someone else whom God has chosen. Now, at this point in Saul's life, and uh, Saul doesn't know who that person is, and, and frankly, at this point in our text, here just at the beginning of chapter 16, nobody knows who that person is. We have to get all the way to the end of uh, chapter or into verses 12 and 13 before we know who that person is who's going to become the new king. But nevertheless, Saul is living with this sure and certain knowledge that he's only a puppet king. His days are numbered. And someday, there's going to come somebody that God says is better than you. And that man is going to serve as king. And as we work our way, by the way, through 1 Samuel, we're going to see how this eats at Saul. But right now, in our text, Samuel feels sorry for Saul. He's grieving over Saul. But notice this with me. God rebukes Samuel for his grief. You might think that's odd that God would rebuke somebody for his grief, but here's why. Notice this with me in verse 1. God says, I have rejected him from being king over Israel. It wasn't Samuel's decision to reject Saul. It was God's decision. And in God's eyes, Samuel has wasted enough time and grief Again, it's not. It's, it started all the way back in chapter 15 that he was grieving, and he continues to grieve now into chapter 16. And God is saying to him, basically, "Enough is enough. It's time to move on. There's a new king to anoint." Beloved, I want to make this point of application for us. Grief should have boundaries. Grief should have boundaries. Now, let me let me explain this. I'm not saying, nor is the Bible saying that grief in and of itself is wrong. On the contrary, grief is good and proper. Jesus Himself said, Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. So grief can be a very, very good thing. But grief does have boundaries. So suppose, for example, a loved one dies. When that happens... Not only can we, but we should, in fact, grieve. It's a sign of relational and emotional health to grieve the passing of a loved one. In other words, if you, if you don't pass, grieve the passing of a loved one, then there's probably something amiss. But let's suppose we, we move that clock forward 5, 10, 15 years down the road. Now, years later, it's still good and proper to miss our loved one, but if we're still grieving in the same way we did right after they passed, to the same, the same way, to the same degree, then that's, that's not a sign of emotional health. It's a sign of emotional sickness or of dysfunction. Because grief has its boundaries. And God is telling Samuel here in this situation, in this situation God is saying, Samuel, it's, enough is enough. It's now time to move on and he's going to send Samuel to Bethlehem, to Jesse the Bethlehemite because God has provided a new king from among Jesse's sons. But Samuel has a concern. And if we're familiar, frankly, with the rest of this story, we know that his concern is actually quite a realistic concern. Samuel says in verse 2, "You know, how can I go? How can I go to Bethlehem? If Saul hears it, he will kill me. I don't know if this ever happened to you, but when I was a teenager, I did something um, bad one time. I got in trouble. I knew well, I knew I was going to get in trouble. And I thought to myself, man, when my mom and dad find, about, find out about this, they're going to kill me. Right? Now, I was using hyperbole. Chances are, if you said something like that, you were using hyperbole as well. You see, my mom and dad, they loved me. Now, they, they would punish me if I did something wrong. But I knew, they let, I knew they weren't going to literally kill me. Again, I was speaking with hyperbole. I was intentionally exaggerating my claim. But here's the deal. Samuel is not speaking with hyperbole. He's not exaggerating his claim. If Saul finds out what Samuel is up to, Saul will literally kill Samuel. And so the Lord tells Samuel to take a heifer with him. He tells Samuel to say to everyone, "I'm coming up to sacrifice to the Lord." As we read that, we might think, "You know, is is the Lord telling Samuel to lie, to to save his own skin? Is that what the Lord's doing here?" No, beloved, that's not what he's doing here. Yeah. Because as we read the rest of the text, we we know that Samuel does indeed plan a sacrifice. We see that in verse three. Again, in verse five, Samuel is bringing a sacrifice. But Samuel is under no obligation to tell Saul everything that's on his mind. Remember, Saul, he's already been rejected as the king, and so Samuel only shares with him what needs to be shared. He's not telling any lies. He's just not telling him everything. And we're told in verse 4, then that Samuel did what the Lord commanded and came to Bethlehem. Even though it could have ended tragically for Samuel, even though it could have cost him his life, Samuel chooses to obey the Lord and he does what God tells him to do. And so, yes, the Lord looks at our heart. But that doesn't mean that our actions are unimportant. Some people call themselves Christians and they live with an attitude of what the Bible calls licentiousness. Now, whether such individuals are Christians or not, i leave for God to decide. But they live, again, a biblical word, licentious lives. And here's, here's what that means to live licentiously. It means you live your life in such a way that you lack any restraints. In the biblical context, it means you live like lacking any moral restraints. It's to say, for example, well, I know what I, I know it's wrong to cheat on this test, but I'm going to do it anyways, and God's going to forgive me for it. That's licentious living. Or it's to say, I know it's wrong to be intimate with this person who's not my spouse, but you know, I'm away on business right now. My spouse is never going to find out, and God is going to forgive me anyways. That's licentious living. And that problem, by the way, it existed in the early church. It existed right there in the church in Rome. In Paul's letter to the church in Rome, he writes this in chapter 6. He says, What shall we say? Or do we continue in sin that grace may abound? In other words, if grace is so awesome, then maybe I should go ahead and sin as much as I can so that I can receive more and more grace for my sin. That, that was you know right. Is that a good idea? Well, Paul says, Wrong. That's not a good idea. It's a perversion of what the Bible actually teaches. And that passage ends like this. He says, what shall I say? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? Verse 2, by no means. How can we who died to sin still live in it? Beloved, we have died to sin. So even though God's grace covers our sin, that doesn't give us license to continue sinning. And even though God looks at our heart, and we might say the heart is the most important, that doesn't mean that our actions are unimportant. Our actions are still quite important. God looks at our heart and he saw Samuel's heart as well. But that didn't mean Samuel could get away with disobedience. Verse five, four, four rather, excuse me, Samuel did what the Lord commanded and came to Bethlehem. Again, even though it could have cost him his life, Samuel was obedient to the Lord. And just as God could see Samuel's heart, just as God could see David's heart, God sees our hearts as well. What does He see when He looks at our hearts? That's point number one. Point number two. God looks at our heart, so we need to be mindful about judging from outward appearances. God sees our hearts, so we need to be mindful about judging from outward appearances. This is verses 6 through 11. Samuel gets to Bethlehem and he knows what he's there for. He's, come, he's going to make a sacrifice and he's there to examine Jesse's sons. So he doesn't waste any time. He gets right to business. In verse 6, when Jesse and his sons come to the sacrifice, Samuel immediately he notices, notices Eliab, who is the oldest. And Samuel immediately takes a liking to Eliab. And he thinks, you know, surely this is the Lord's anointed. And then we come to the most significant verse in this passage, verse 7. Look at it with me, That verse 7. It's the most important verse. If you're going to underline one verse in this passage, this would be the one to underline. But the Lord said to Samuel, Do not look on his appearance or on his height, on the height of his stature, because I have rejected him. For the Lord sees not as man sees. Man looks on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the heart. We're told that first impressions are important. And so far as human beings are concerned, they are important, right? I mean, I alluded to this earlier. If you're looking for a job somewhere and a resume is required, probably a good idea to have somebody else look at, maybe have three or four or five sets of eyes look at that resume before you send it out. You know, it's full of grammar mistakes and typos. You very well might be the best candidate for the job, but you don't even get an interview because you've made a poor first impression. But first impressions can also be very misleading. Take, for example, you maybe have a classmate at school who's, who's a bit aloof, standoffish. And her aloofness makes her come across as if she thinks she's better than you. At least that's the way it looks. Like, does she think she's better than me? It might be that she's just shy. It might be that she just doesn't know how to start a conversation. And if you took the initiative to come up and talk to her, you might find out that she would be one of your best friends. First impressions can oftentimes be misleading. But never we we make judgments based on first impressions all the time, don't we? You know, we see the guy who's waiting impatiently in the checkout line at the drugstore, and we might think to ourselves, you know, just chill, man. You know, we're all in this line, and nobody wants to wait in this line, but we're all here, just you know, chill, wait out. You know, we're, we'll all get through the line. You know, that might be our first impression, but it, but it could be that he's anxiously waiting to get home to his daughter, who's running a fever, and the reason he has Gatorade or Pedialyte in his hand is because he has a daughter that needs them and he loves his daughter and he just, he just wants to get home to her quickly. Now, of course, it could be possible he's just acting like a jerk, right? And he thinks he's, his time is better than everybody else's time. That, that's that's a possibility. My point, though, is standing there in line on a person, we can't examine somebody's heart, can we? We don't know what's going on in the heart. Only God knows. God not only knows what's going on on the outside, God knows what's going on on in the inside and He knows what's going on with in our lives with great detail. Both good and bad. He knows everything. You know, a little boy hits his sister and his mom and dad tell him, you go apologize to your sister. And he crosses his arms and with a, <clears throat> a humph. And he says to his sister, I'm sorry. Well, maybe based on outward appearance, maybe, maybe he... Maybe he really meant it. Maybe he didn't. But really only God knows, right? God knows from the heart. He might be saying it just to make mom and dad happy. But we can't judge somebody's heart. God sees everything. He knows everything. But we don't have that ability. We make, we make judgments all the time based on outward appearances. Eliab was tall, dark, and handsome, if you will. And so Samuel sees him and goes, it's got to be the guy. It's got to be him. But God rejected Eliab. And he says, I don't look on outward appearances. And by the time sons two and three pass by, Samuel, he's learned his lesson. And he says the same of Abinadab, a Shema. He says, you know, no, nope, the Lord's rejected him as well. Sons four, five, six, and seven pass by. Verse 10, they're all rejected. Which leaves, of course, Samuel in a bit of a pickle because Samuel knows that one of these boys, is to be anointed as the king. But all of the ones that he's seeing so far, all of them have been rejected. And so in verse 11, Samuel asks, are all your sons here? To which Jesse replies, there remains yet the youngest. Some of your translations will say there remains yet the smallest. A reference to his size. And here we see that David is already, he's already being judged based on his physical appearance. Either his youth or his diminutive status, his smallness. David is so insignificant, even within the eyes of his own family. Everybody else is invited to the sacrifice, but not David. David, you need to stay out there with the sheep. It's, to use a modern illustration, you know, David is still sitting at the kitty dinner at Thanksgiving, right? All the adults have finally graduated up to the, to the big table, and David is still sitting at the kitty ta- table. But before we're too quick again to pass judgment on the rest of his family for how they were judging David, we do the same thing, don't we? And we need to be mindful about that. We need to be mindful about our propensity to judge people based on outward appearances. And so Samuel gets right to the point, and he says, Jesse, you know, hurry up and get him. Nobody's even going to sit down until this young man shows up. And they send for David, which takes me to point number three. God looks at our heart, but outward appearance isn't unimportant. God looks at her heart, but outward appearance isn't unimportant. This is verse 12. This was puzzling for me this week, I'll be honest with you. Because the key verse in this passage is, is verse 7. You know, that, that God doesn't judge as everybody Everybody else looks at the outward appearance, but God says, I look at the heart. And then we get to verse 12, and the first thing we're told about David is how he looks. I mean, it's kind of ironic, right? You read, you know, God says, I don't judge a person by outside. And then, well, let me, let me describe David to you. Let me tell you what he looks like on the outside. He's ruddy, he has beautiful eyes, and he's handsome. You know, ruddy is like a healthy, reddish appearance. Uh, so we're basically being told here in verse 12 that you know David was easy to look at. right? He might even win an award for being the most eligible bachelor in the area. And again, it's, it's rather ironic, given that the focus of this whole passage is about how God looks on the heart rather than outward appearance. And I began to wonder why, why here in this passage are we being told what David looked like? I wrestled with that question this week. I mean, if if his physical appearance was important, and apparently it is, it's included in Scripture. So I, I have a very simple um, hermeneutic on that: if it's, if something's included in here, it's important, all right. And so if his physical appearance is important, you know, David is all over the Bible. It could have been described anywhere. Why is it described in the middle of a passage where God Himself says, "I don't judge based on outward appearance, but on the heart"? And then the very like the next, while that's still in the air, the very next breath is, "Well, let me tell you what David looked like outwardly." Beloved, I don't know that there's necessarily one right answer to to that question that I began to pose to myself. But here's where the Lord took me, and to be sure. His heart, David's heart, was more important than anything else. But that's not to say that his outward appearance was unimportant. Again, his heart was chiefly important, but that's not to say that his outward appearance was unimportant. And let me make an application from that principle. I'm going to share a story from my, from my own life, and I think I've shared part of this story with you before, but when I was 23 years old, I was given an opportunity to teach my first Sunday school class. Um, I started teaching 11th grade Sunday school. Um, the church I was attending then, it wasn't a, I was a member of, I wasn't, it wasn't a huge church, it's not like a mega church, maybe it had six, 700 people on Sunday mornings, so it was a large church, you know, large enough to have it, have, uh, you know, and the youth department had a high school department by itself, a middle school department, and then, each, and then the high school department had, you know, grade level Sunday school, uh, so you had a 12th grade class, 11th grade class, 10th grade class, etc. Uh, and I loved teaching that class. It was so much fun. Uh, to teach that class. I remember my first class was Easter Sunday, 1990. First, you know, what a, what a, what a day to begin teaching Sunday school, Easter Sunday. I literally had that day a dozen or more, uh, page, handwritten pages of notes, because, you know, if you, if you're a teacher, you know, the worst thing, you don't want to run out of material. You want better to have too much material than not enough material. And so I had all this material. I was quite certain I wasn't going to run out of material. I was very excited, uh, that day, and, in a 40-minute class, after 20 minutes, I was so excited. I just, 20 minutes, I was done. I mean, every, I was like, what do we do now? And so I'm just like staring at them, um, didn't, didn't have a clue. Uh, and I was only six years, so it was a junior class. I was 23. Um, I was only six years their, their senior, so it wasn't like I was, uh, you know, old and full of wisdom or anything um, at the time. Two of them, by the way, two of them in that class went on to serve uh, Served the Lord and are still to this day, um, 30 years later, serving the Lord vocationally in ministry. Not, I'm not saying I had anything to do with that. But this is the type of class it was. It was a fantastic class. At any rate, that summer, so I started teaching in 19 Easter. That summer, I went, took a road trip. And road trip took me up through Kentucky into Ohio. But while I was in Kentucky, I was visiting with Jack and Barbara Parrish. They were parents of one of my best friends from high school. And uh, Jack had retired from the military, relocated to Kentucky to fly planes for uh, one of the airlines. And Barbara was like a second mom to me. I only spent one night with them, but I remember Barbara asking me before dinner what I was doing in my life. And since she and Jack were both Christians, uh, I was eager and excited to tell them that I was teaching Sunday school now. And they were both very thrilled to hear that news. And as I continued to tell her about my life, I would tell her, you know, yeah, so, you know what's going on socially. I wasn't married, wasn't dating anybody, and you know, they were asking me these questions as you know, moms and dads kind of will. And um, I said, well, you know, I kind of go out on the weekend. I hang out with some friends. There's a local um, nightclub that we go out to. Um, I was 23 at the time. And, um, and by the way, just for the record, I, so I've never in my life been much of an alcoholic drinker. I can count on one hand and, yes, either of the hands, okay? I, how many times that I've had too much to drink in my life. All right, so, um, I would just go out and hang out with my friends, and, um, and I would drink, honestly, I would drink a grapefruit juice. I love, I love grapefruit juice. I would drink a grapefruit juice. And Barbara knew me. She knew me well enough that I wasn't the drinking type, and she knew good and well I wasn't out getting drunk. So what, what happened next to that, that it kind of surprised me what she said next. She got a very concerned look on her face, and she told me that now that I was teaching, uh, Sunday school to young people, I had a responsibility to set a good example for them. And she said, you know, Brian, I know you're not out there drinking, um, but if you're going to that nightclub, they see you going to the nightclub, they don't know that you're not drinking. And they might be encouraged to start drinking, thinking that, well, but why else would somebody go into the nightclub but to be drinking? Now, by this time, again, I, 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 I actually just turned 24 uh, that summer. And to be honest, um, you know, it's hard to teach a 24-year-old anything, um, No offense to the 24-year-olds who are here with us today. Um, So maybe I should say it's hard to teach. It's hard to teach this 24-year-old anything. Okay, I'll let you decide for yourself. Um, But I remember thinking how much I loved and respected Barbara, but she was just being old-fashioned in my mind. I said, like, she's just yeah, she's being old-fashioned because I knew in my heart that I was that I, I wasn't out getting drunk. I wasn't sinning, if you will, in that way. And so my heart was that was that was good enough for me. My my heart was right. Barbara excused herself and went on to make dinner and meanwhile I'm sitting in her lazy boy recliner with my Bible open uh, for one of the first times in my life since I started teaching just just eating it up just loving to read the Bible and I was reading 1st Corinthians I'd never read through the book of 1st Corinthians at the time and I was reading it that night and I won't we're not going to turn there I won't explain it from the text but I remember vividly I was reading from chapter 8 of 1st Corinthians and the Lord convicted me right there in that recliner I mean I can remember like it was yesterday right there in that recliner Barbara was right. Here's my point. Sometimes we feel like we can do whatever we want to do as long as our heart's right with it. You know, we say, well, you know, God only looks at the heart. Well, the Bible doesn't say that God only looks at the heart. As a matter of fact, in the King James Bible, in 1 Thessalonians, uh, it says this. It says that we're to avoid even the appearance of evil. Avoid even the appearance of evil. And the Greek word there about the appearance of evil, it refers to how somebody else would perceive it, the shape or structure of the outward appearance. And so before we get too comfortable in this idea, well, my my heart's okay with it, therefore it's okay if I do it, we ought to ask ourselves if what we're doing is the outward appearance of what I'm doing leading somebody else in a sinful way. David was a man after God's own heart, but we also have a description of what he looks like outwardly. And that was important for us to know. His outward appearance was important. Again, without a doubt, our heart is most important. No, no doubt there. But that's not to say that our outward appearance, the things we do outwardly, are unimportant. Now to our final point. God looks at our heart so He knows we can't do it on our own. This is verse 13. The Lord tells Samuel that David is indeed the one. And so Samuel takes his horn of oil and he anoints David there in front of his brothers. That's the end of chapter, verse 12 and the beginning of verse 13. And then right there in the middle of verse 13 we said, And the Spirit of the Lord rushed upon David from that day forward. Well, have you ever wondered why the Spirit of the Lord rushed upon David? There's a simple answer to that. And here it is. It's because David, even though he was a man after God's own heart, David did, God knew that David didn't have it in himself to be the man that God needed him to be on his own. David was never going to be the man God wanted him to be if David was going to rely only on his own strength. Now, for sure, David would have had some victories here and there, and he probably would have won enough victories to have made a name for himself to say, look who I am. But he never would have been the king that God wanted him to be without the aid of the Spirit of the Lord. And beloved, that same thing is true for us today. It's the reason why we're given the Spirit of God so that we can have the power of God to live the kind of lives that God wants us to live. This is why we're commanded, by the way, in the New Testament to be filled with the Spirit. It's not an optional extra for Christians. Now, sure, we might win an occasional victory here or there when we rely on our own strength, but we will never be the men and women God wants us to be apart from being filled with the Holy Spirit in our lives. It just won't happen. Now, a quick word, very brief word about the Spirit's work in the Old Testament as opposed to after the day of Pentecost. Because in the Old Testament, we don't see the Holy Spirit of God being poured out on all of God's children. On the contrary, in the Old Testament, the Holy Spirit is given only to those who need the Spirit for a specific task. So David needed the Spirit in order to be the king that God wanted him to be. The prophets needed the Spirit of God so they could prophesy what God wanted them to prophesy. But by and large, the people in the Old Testament, the the people who followed God in the Old Testament, by and large, they're not given the Holy Spirit. But that all changes on the day of Pentecost in Acts chapter 2. And a new pattern begins to emerge after Acts 2. Now we see the Holy Spirit being poured out on all believers. This is why we can be commanded to be filled with it. If, If we didn't have access to the Spirit, it would be foolish then to command us to be filled with the Holy Spirit, right? So what's changed? Jesus has changed. Jesus changed everything. Because Jesus through His death, burial, and resurrection took care of our sin so that we can now be united with God. And in our unity with God as we're being brought into God, we now have access to the Spirit of God because we've been granted eternal life through Christ. Beloved, if if you've trusted in Christ, you have access to that Spirit even now even here, you have access to the Spirit of God. If you've, but if, if you've never trusted in Christ, if you're here today and think, yeah, I've, you know, earlier when I had people standing up by age, age you, know, you might say, you, you could get to 100 and I still wouldn't be standing. Maybe some of you were in that situation this morning where no matter what age I got to, you're like, I've never, I've never trusted in Christ. What better time to do that than today, than even now, to to trust in Jesus and to know that Jesus through His death, burial, and resurrection paid the penalty for your sin so that through trusting in Him you might have eternal life. And when you do that, you too will have the power of the Holy Spirit in your lives. Let me pray together. Father, thank You so much for Your grace and kindness to us. Thank You for Your love, Your mercy. I thank You that you look at our hearts, that our hearts are, are they're so terribly important. But they're not all that's important. Our our outward actions, our outward appearances also important. And even if we have or even if we could be described as men and women after your own heart, apart from your Holy Spirit, we can't, we can't live the lives that you want us to live. And so I thank you that your Spirit rushed upon David, helped him to live the life that you called him to live. It wasn't a perfect life. There were, there are plenty of failures in David's life. But because of your Spirit, he was able to live a life that honored you. And so I pray now, Lord Jesus, that for those of us who have trusted in Christ, that we would be filled with Your Spirit so that our lives might honor You. And for anyone here today who has never trusted in Christ, Lord, I pray that they might do so even today to trust in Christ so that they might also be filled with Your Spirit. Lord, I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. If you have questions about what they... If you're, if you're here today you've never trusted in Christ, I would just encourage you, um, I'd love to talk with you um, about that. You can reach me by email. You can text me, call me, whatever my number or my email is in the bulletin there in your seat. Um, I'd love to talk talk that over with you. And there's really no more important decision you can make in your life. Uh, I'm going to close with a word from Psalm 24, um, verses 1 through 6. It's a Psalm of David. It says, The earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. The world and those who dwell therein who seek the face of the God of Jacob. Selah. Thank you for taking time to listen to this sermon audio from Potomac Heights Baptist Church. Please feel free to make copies of this audio to give to others, but please do not charge for those copies or alter their content in any way without express written permission from Potomac Heights Baptist Church.